Uh, my name is Gary Weber, and it is my privilege to serve as the pastor here at Southside Baptist Church, and I'm uh, glad you decided to be with us on this holiday weekend. Uh, we have our picture of the week I want to share with you. This was, uh, many of you are involved in graduations and sort of end of the year things as the school year comes to an end. Um, some of you may or may not know, we offer ESL, English as a Second Language, on Monday nights here at Southside. And so this is a picture. We had a celebration uh, at, on this past Monday night as we wrapped that up for the year. And I uh, just wanted to share a a little bit of information with you about that. Uh, this year in ESL, there were over 20 volunteers that came on Monday nights, did everything from childcare to teaching English as a second language classes to citizenship classes. There were 25 students involved on five different levels. The highest level is a citizenship class. And so we are really excited. There were three folks in our citizenship class. Uh, there are 20 kids that have to be cared for so the parents can be involved in ESL. So we've got child care workers coming, people bringing snacks, playing games with the kids. And uh, this coming week, uh, one of our Corinne friends, July 2, will be sworn in as a U.S. citizen here in the city of Jacksonville. So we're very excited. Yeah, you can celebrate that. So if you are an ESL volunteer, you're part of that ministry or program in any way, thank you for all you do all year to make a real difference in our city. And if you want more information about how you can be involved, uh, they're gearing up already for fall and for next year, uh, you can talk to Susan Russo. Susan would love to give you some more information. You can contact the church and uh, we'll share that with you. Uh, you know, I, as I was thinking about the, the significance of this particular week, and as July 2 is sworn in, takes his oath of, oath of citizenship this week, you know, you think about all, if you're familiar with many of the refugees that are coming into Jacksonville and that we're working with, they're coming from terribly oppressive governments and, and just terrible living situations, and they come here and they experience freedom that so often we take for granted. And Memorial Day is more than a day that we get an extra day off in a cookout. It's a day that we remember those who sacrificed their lives so that we uh, could enjoy the freedom that we have. And so I thought, man, what a great week to be sworn in as a U.S. citizen after Memorial Day to be able to celebrate. And so I pray as you're with family and friends, as you are uh, enjoying maybe an extra day off this week, I hope you get one of those. Uh, I, I think just take a moment and pray and give thanks to God for the freedoms that we so often take for granted and for those who uh, sacrificed a lot so that we could enjoy, uh, enjoy those freedoms. What a, what a wonderful weekend to be together. Uh, I know that for many of us, uh, anytime there's a holiday, it's an excuse to eat more food. We, you know, whatever that means, if that's uh, a cookout, if that's uh, going out maybe with some friends to dinner. Uh, but I wanted to ask, have you, has any of you, ever, any of you ever been in a situation where uh, you were so busy that you forgot to eat? Anybody know, anybody ever had a time like that? Not, not that you were too busy to eat, that's different. Like you were so busy, you just didn't think about it. I remember when, um, when our kids were younger and we had four of them, seven and younger, and I would come home in the evening and Sherry would, uh, she was, we were blessed for Sherry to be able to stay home and keep our kids at home. So I'd come home for dinner and we'd be having dinner and she'd say, I am starving. And then she I didn't eat lunch today. She just, you know, she was so busy as a mom. Maybe some of you moms can relate to that. Just so busy chasing kids, doing all the things you need to. Or maybe you're at work and there's a project and there's a deadline coming up and you didn't mean to work through lunch, but you just, you got to three or four in the afternoon and all of a sudden maybe felt a little hunger pain and realized, man, I didn't eat lunch. I was just so busy that I couldn't do it. Maybe there was a project at the, at the house you were working on. But there have been times where we've been so involved in something that our, our, 
Hunger doesn't even register with our mind. There's something else occupying us. Jesus said something very interesting uh, that we find recorded in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Jesus said this. He said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, if you're in church much, that verse is not a new verse to you. And, and you probably don't even have to come to church much to recognize that verse. It's just kind of one of those that, that people hear. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. But maybe we're so used to hearing it that we don't really think about what he's actually saying in this verse. That there's something almost odd about this. How can hunger create satisfaction? Because isn't that what he's saying? That if you're hungry and thirsty for righteousness, you'll be satisfied. So by being hungry, you will actually be satisfied. I want us to look at a story today where I think we get an insight into what this means and maybe how we can find satisfaction for the hunger of our souls the same way that Jesus did. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open to John. Uh, John chapter 4, if you've been with us for a while, you know we're sort of making our way, plowing our way through the gospel of John. We're at the very end of an encounter that Jesus had with a Samaritan woman, uh, the woman at the well, maybe a familiar title, you've heard the story called. Uh, And in this passage, we find Jesus' humanity displayed. When the story first opens, we're told that Jesus is hungry, We're told that he's thirsty, we're told that he's hot, and we're told that he's tired. Now, we don't think of Jesus in those terms. Uh, We we think of us in those terms, but we, we tend not to think about Jesus being in any kind of need at all. But John chapter 4 sets this story up, and John is very intentional. He wants you to know that Jesus is tired and weary, so much so that when they get to this point, they're traveling, he and the disciples are traveling from Jerusalem up to Galilee, and they get to this town in, a, in an area called Samaria. Jesus is so tired, he doesn't even go with the fellas. They're going into town and finding some KFC. I mean, they're going to, you know, where is the closest Chick-fil-A? We are starving. So Jesus stays at this little reservoir place. There's a well there. Jesus says, fellas, I'm, you go on, find the food. I'm camping out here i'm staying right here so he is very hungry very tired very thirsty a woman approaches jesus in the middle of the day which something's odd and off because uh, women didn't come to wells alone they didn't come in the heat of the day they came early in the morning they came in a group together so clearly this woman's got issues clearly there's something about this woman that she doesn't fit in with the rest of society or the rest of her village but she comes jesus makes the situation even more awkward because he talks to her, which men in this culture to this day still don't talk to women. Jews certainly didn't talk to Samaritans. And so Jesus speaks to her and says, hey, why don't you give me a drink? And she's like, you're talking to me? I mean, you, this, maybe you don't know that we don't, we're not supposed to talk to each other. So they have this conversation about what it means to be thirsty. And what you find out is that while Jesus is physically thirsty, this woman is spiritually dehydrated. And so the conversation goes on and Jesus says, hey, listen, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me and I'd give you living water and you'd never be thirsty again. Well, through the course of the conversation, Jesus, for the very first time in the Gospel of John, reveals that he is the Messiah. Now, the Messiah is this promised figure that the Jews have been waiting on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years who would come and rescue them. 
And for the first time to this woman, a Samaritan, by herself, no crowd around, Jesus says, hey, by the way, that's me. I'm that guy. And so she is kind of shocked. And and right at that moment, the disciples come back. They've got the food, and they are coming back to find Jesus. So John chapter 4, beginning in verse 27, here's what the scripture says. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Now, this is really interesting. Everything in scripture is there for a reason. So anytime you come across something that you're reading, you have to think, why would this be included? John is very intentional at including this because throughout the entire gospel, he is always reminding his reader that Jesus did not treat women according to the customs of their day. He didn't. He was a radical. He made people, even his own disciples, very, very uncomfortable. And part of the reason this is happening, if if you follow the story, you you see Jesus' interaction with his mother in John chapter 2 is not really conventional. Here you see Jesus interacting with this woman at the well. You're going to meet Mary Magdalene. You're going to meet Martha. You're going to, at the end of the gospel, find out that the women are the first ones who come to the tomb and say that Jesus is alive, which women were not even allowed to testify in court. And yet they're the first ones. You're going to see Jesus interacting with a woman caught in adultery. Over and over and over throughout the scripture, you find Jesus interacting, breaking social norms, and treating women different than everybody else. And here's part of why I think this is so important. Because what John is trying to tell you is that Jesus is reversing the effects of the fall. If you go back to the Genesis story and you read what happened, Adam and Eve were created in God's image. There's a beautiful relationship that was, that was existing between Adam and Eve and between God. It was beautiful. The fall destroyed that. And as a consequence of the fall, the relationship, not just between man and God, becomes severed and disrupted, but the relationship between men and women becomes severed and disrupted. And Jesus said, I am reversing that. I am recreating things. And so he begins that process even as he interacts with the women in that culture. And it stood out and it was different and it was awkward and it created awkward conversations. But Jesus is saying we're reversing everything about the fall. Do you realize that everywhere that the gospel takes root, the condition of women improves? Everywhere across the world. Because the gospel, the message of Jesus, is we are reversing the effects of the fall. And Jesus began and initiated that ministry, even in this conversation with this woman. So what happens next? Uh, Verse 28. So the woman left her water jar, which, which, by the way, this would have been a valuable possession for her. I mean, this this was life. She had to have this jar in order to bring water back to sustain life and to sustain family. And she, if something happened to it, she couldn't just run down to Walmart and buy another one. I mean, she, this, was, this was really important. So she left it there, which just tells you how amazed she is, how shocked she is by the situation. She left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Now, think about this for a minute. This woman is so ostracized, so isolated, that nobody will even go to the well with her. They know her. They know the way she's lived. 
They, they can tell you the husbands, and they can list them in order, all five of them. And they know the guy she's living with now. This is a woman of ill repute. And nobody probably even talks to her. She rushes back in town, and she announces, Hey, guys, I know, I know what you say about me. But there's a guy out there who he knows everything about me, too, and he doesn't even from this town. You guys should come. Well, immediately, he, she captures their interest, and they go with her back out to the town. It, it, says, uh, it says they went out of the town and were coming to him. Now, the, the townspeople were struck by this woman's invitation because it includes an omission of her own brokenness. Think about what she's saying. She's saying, he told me everything I ever did. He knew. He could look right through me. All my pretense, all my attempts to sort of distract him and, and, and get him off on theological topics and, and religious arguments, it, it didn't work. And one of the interesting things about this woman is this, this immoral Samaritan woman became an evangelist before any of the disciples did. She went back to her town and shared the gospel before any of the disciples, before Peter, before John, before anybody else did it. This woman did it. Now, I want to step away from this story for just a minute. We're going to, we're going to pick back up here. I want to skip down and see because there's something that happens in the middle. You've got this woman uh, going back to town and you've got the woman coming back to Jesus. But there's a conversation that happens in the interlude between Jesus and the disciples that I think really sets the stage for everything that's actually going on. It's, it's kind of an aside. So if you would skip down with me to verse 39. Skip John chapter 4 verse 39. So many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Why did they believe in him? Because, yeah, it's highlighted up there. You guys are awake? I know it's holiday. Because of the woman's testimony. All right, let's try one more time. Why did they believe in him? Because of the woman's testimony. Because, and what was her testimony? He told me everything I ever did. That was her testimony. Her testimony was very revealing. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Jews did not even talk to Samaritans. Jesus pitches a tent and stays for two days with these folks. And many more believed because of his word. Because he's staying in town for a couple weeks. Then, then it says this. They said to the woman. So, so after two days, Jesus has this impromptu revival. A bunch of people come to believe in him, that he is the Messiah. Now, remember, we just left Jerusalem where nobody believes he's the Messiah. We come to Samaria, and suddenly the whole town breaks out in revival in an impromptu two-day uh, two seminar that Jesus offers. And so they come to the woman and they say, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Like they got it. Nicodemus, the religious leader that we read about in chapter 3, he didn't get it. The disciples didn't even get it yet. But all these Samaritans, they got it. And why did they get it? They got it because of this woman's testimony. And this tells us something really important. First of all, I want you to catch what's going on here. Jesus did not replace the woman. He didn't say, you know what? I, I, let me just go into town and, and tell them about myself because I can do it better than you can do it. I mean, you've got a reputation. Nobody's probably going to listen to you. Jesus didn't replace this woman. He empowered her. 
And when she went back into town, her willingness to be transparent created curiosity. Something must be going on, these townspeople said. Why would this woman come in here and say the things that she said? It created curiosity, but it was Jesus' word that convinced them of the truth. Now, this is a really bizarre evangelism strategy. Now, I know if you're not in church much, you don't like talking about evangelism and hearing about evangelism. But let me just let you in on a secret. If those of us who come to church all the time, we don't like it either. Okay, we're not comfortable with it either. It makes everybody awkward, makes everybody uncomfortable. But think about this evangelism strategy. Embrace the person that everybody else rejects, that nobody else listens to. Pick that person and send them back in to tell them the news. And then let's see what happens. Because that's exactly what Jesus did. See, the gospel message is powerful. And the gospel message does not depend on our biases or our strategies or our wisdom or our plans. The message is powerful. When you see somebody's life who's changed, when you see somebody suddenly come to an awakening of who they are and what God's done in their life, it speaks to you. It draws you in. Some of you have those kinds of testimonies. I've got a friend, I was talking to a friend recently, um, and he was telling me uh, that he was in, he's involved in a um, sort of a, a, a sports club. Uh, they, these guys get together and they, 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 play, these, they, play, this, uh, they play basketball together and they're, they're involved. And he said, you know, I'm in this group, Gary, and none of them are Christians. Like they're, not only are they not Christians, like our worldviews couldn't be, I mean, more different. But politically, in every which way, I'm just the odd person in this group. And so I, he said, I just kind of stay quiet a lot. I don't say much. I enjoy them. I enjoy their company. Uh, but they're, you know, I, he said, I think, I think almost all of them, um, they're not just agnostic, they're atheist, uh, which means they're angry agnostics. I mean, they've got sort of an, they're, they're, they've got an agenda. And, and he said, I just really feel, I, I really don't know what to say or do, because I feel like if I say anything, they're going to, you know, they're going to pounce on me. And I, I don't want to burn bridges and all this stuff. He said, but something really interesting happened. My, my friend um, has been in recovery for uh, 10 or 12 years and uh, recently uh, had a relapse and went through a really, really difficult time. And so he went to the, he went to the group and he was, they were sitting around, they were talking, they were waiting on everybody to get there. And somebody asked a question. They said, well, so how, how's your week going? And my friend said, I don't know what came over me, but I just felt the sudden need to be completely honest. Hmm, imagine that, a Christian being honest. So he said, I just felt the need. I, so I just said, you know, I'm really having a hard time because, um, because I, I, I've been in recovery for uh, 11 or 12 years. And he said, I just, I had a relapse the last couple of weeks and I've really been struggling. And all of a sudden, the whole group sitting there, suddenly everybody was glued in, like, Tell me more. What's going on? So one of the people said, tell me, how do, you, how do you handle that? What do you do? And my friend said, well, I believe in Jesus Christ. And I just, I believe that I, I've, got to, I've got to refocus my life, recenter my life on Jesus Christ because Jesus died for me. And, and the only thing that gives me hope in life or for eternity is the fact that Jesus paid for all my sins. Nobody said a word. <laughs> They're all like, okay, yeah. Now, just think, if my friend had not been transparent, if he had not confessed his own struggle, nobody would have heard him say those words. Nobody. 
But suddenly, because he was willing to open up a very dark and a very painful thing in his life, suddenly the message of the gospel came right out of his heart and came right into the ears of those listening. I don't know what that'll do to them. But you know what? That's not my friend's responsibility. My, my friend's responsibility, much like this woman in this story, was just to be honest, to be a willing vessel, to be truthful, to say, this is how it really is. This is what made a difference in my life. And now Jesus will take care of the rest because Jesus does that. And so, so that's what was going on here with this woman, that there's, this conversation was happening. She went in. It, it was such a profound impact on the people, not because she was smart or educated or she knew all the right answers or she could argue all the right points with them or she could say, well, what about the dinosaurs? I don't know about the dinosaurs. I just know that this man told me everything I ever did. Something is different inside of me. And the whole town went out to hear about it. Now, let's go back. Let's back up because the conversation that happens between the woman leaving and her bringing the town back tells us something significant. So back up, if you would, to verse 31. Verse 31. Meanwhile, so the woman has left. She's gone in. She's telling everybody what's going on. But meanwhile, Jesus and the disciples were, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. Rabbi, eat. We went off to get food. We left. You were hungry. You were thirsty. You were hot. You were tired. We brought the food back. Rabbi, you should eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? I mean, guys, what is, go- this, what is going on? How did he eat? There was nothing to eat. Now, it's interesting. John does this throughout the gospel. He, he constantly shows this pattern of people who misunderstand Jesus. Now, it's not because these people are not intelligent. They're very intelligent. It's because Jesus says some really odd things. So, so back in John chapter 2, Jesus said, I'm going to destroy this temple and build it back in three days. And everybody's looking at him like, are you crazy? It took 40 years to build this temple. In John chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must, to get into the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, how can a man re-enter his mother? You are insane. And earlier in this chapter, uh, Jesus was talking to this woman at the well. He said, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me and I'd give you living water. And the woman said, dude, you don't even have a bucket. How are you going to give me water? And now we see this conversation with the disciples. I have food to eat that nobody knows about. In verse 35, Jesus said to them, my food, this is so huge, because some of you have come today and there's something inside of you, there's a nagging hunger. There's something inside of you that's not satisfied. And you're looking for it in all kinds of different places. Jesus said, my food. Okay, Some of you are here, and it's not that you're hungry. You're not physically hungry, but maybe you eat to satisfy something other than a physical hunger. Maybe you medicate to bring ease to something that isn't a physical pain, but it is an emotional pain. And so you need to hear what Jesus is about to say because this is really, really key. It's key to everything that just happened with this woman. It's key to everything that the disciples would need to understand about Jesus. And it's key for everything that we need to understand about what Jesus offers us. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. My food is to do the will 
of the one who sent me and to accomplish what he has told me to do. That's what brings satisfaction to my soul. Let me paraphrase what Jesus is saying. I am strengthened to do the will of God by doing the will of God. Now think about that. What is Jesus saying? There is something, there's a self-perpetuating sustenance that Jesus has tapped into. And, and he's referring back to something in the Old Testament that was said. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3 says this. Man does not live, you can even finish it with me. Man does not live by what? By bread alone. But by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, John chapter 1, we're going to go back and review. In the beginning was the word and the word became flesh. Do you know how God's word becomes flesh today? When you do it. When you live it out. God's word becomes flesh when you love your enemy and pray for those who are persecuting. God's word becomes flesh. God's word becomes flesh when you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. God's word becomes flesh. Jesus said, the word, the bread of life, is what sustains me. Because when the word is made flesh, I am sustained. And here's what Jesus said, verse 36. Do you not say there are yet four months to harvest? Four months is about the time that it took when you planted something in order to reap it. So do you not say four months until harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Do you know what was going on right at that time? They're up on a hill, up at the well, and they're looking down into the village. And here comes the woman. And guess who's behind her? The whole town. And Jesus, we don't know because, I mean, this wasn't, nobody flipped out, got out their iPhone and videoed what was happening. But I could imagine this is exactly what's happening. Jesus is saying, look, the field is ripe unto harvest. What's happening? The woman is leading the town and they're coming back. They're on their way back up to see Jesus. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another one reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labor, and you are entered into their labor. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, guys, you're getting ready to see something. You're getting ready to be a part of a harvest, and you didn't do anything to make it happen. You know who did? That woman that's leading the way back. She sowed, and you're getting ready to reap the harvest. Something is happening. Jesus said things are changing. Jesus is Jesus sows and there's an immediate harvest. He's collapsing the sowing and the reaping together. He's bringing the fulfillment of the word that he is in fact the Messiah and the disciples are getting ready to see what it is that brings satisfaction to the soul, to do God's will. Now, I, I want to talk to you about this for just a few minutes and bring it, bring it to us today because I think this passage, uh, while maybe familiar to some of you, has some implications that maybe, maybe we haven't always thought about. The first one is this, and we're going to put these up on the screen. A hunger to know and do God's will will result in the satisfaction of our souls. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. When you hunger to know and do God's will, there's a satisfaction that comes into your soul that cannot be explained, and it cannot be replaced by anything less. And so you might say, well, that sounds great, Gary, but that first part, like that, that fourth word is my problem. A hunger to know and do God's will. Like I would do it if I knew it. 
but I don't know it. And I would challenge you, first of all, I would say you probably know more of it than you think you do. My question to you first is, are you doing what you already know? Because why would God tell you more of his will, reveal more of his will to you, if you're not already being obedient with what he's already revealed to you? Are you doing what you already know to be true? Or what you already know to be God's will? But here's the, here's the other thing. How do you know God's will? I think Jesus, when he said in the Sermon on the Mount, when he prayed a prayer, he gave us a really important clue. Jesus said, he, he prayed, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does that mean? That means Jesus' desire is for things on earth to look like things in heaven. That's what he wants. So how do you know God's will? Well, part of the way I think you know God's will is where is there, where is there dissonance between heaven and earth in your life? in your relationship, in your community. Where, where, do things, where are things on earth not like heaven? And where is the gap between heaven and earth in your own heart, in your own life, in your family, in your relationships? Where's the gap in our community, in our church, between heaven and earth? Because God is in the gaps everywhere between heaven and earth, trying to pull the two together, trying to bring heaven closer to earth. And if you want to find God, you look for him in the gaps between heaven and earth because he invites you to join him in that place in the work that he's doing. See, the hunger, a hunger to know and do God's will results in the satisfaction of our soul. We find God's will in the gaps between heaven and earth. So let's talk about this for a minute. Being drawn into the gaps of life. This, this idea of being drawn into the gaps of life, I want to talk about two in particular because they, all of us can immediately come up with scenarios and situations where we can identify these gaps. The first one is this, the gap between his righteousness and our reality. Now, remember, Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And righteousness is kind of a churchy term, but let me just, let me just make it something that maybe it makes it a little easier for you to understand. Righteousness just basically means rightness. That's all it is. So when you know something is right, like this is right or this is wrong, I, righteousness means it's right. So the, the gap between what is right and what is real. So you know this happens all the time. You know what is righteous. It's not righteous for there to be women and children and, and vulnerable citizens in our city and our country trafficked. That's not right, is it? That's wrong. And so there's a gap between what is right and what is real. Because what is right is that that wouldn't be happening, but what is real is that it is happening. There's a gap between those things. And God's invitation is to say, would you step into this gap with me and help usher heaven into earth? That's what he's asking. Refugees in our community who need to be welcomed in, who, who have no place to live, have no citizenship anywhere else in the world, and they're trying to make their way in our city and in our country, well, there's a gap there. And so, you know, 25 Southsiders said, we'll step in that gap. You know what else they found in the gap besides, besides these refugees who needed their help? They found God in the gap. There's a satisfaction for their soul that only comes when they're willing to, to enter into the gap. See, we will either enter into the gaps or we will run away from them. Jesus confronted this Samaritan woman at the well. She was in the gap. She's somebody clearly in the gap 
The women come in the mornings and the evening and they come in groups. This woman came in the middle of the day when nobody else was coming. This was a woman of the gap. What did Jesus do? He had a choice. He could press in to the gap or he could pull away from the gap. Here's my question. What would you have done? What would you have done? Now, before you say, oh, I'd have been, I'd have talked to her. I wouldn't have had a problem. No, you, you probably wouldn't. I don't think I would have. I've thought about this all week. I'm like, I wouldn't have because I'm a rule follower. And the rule is men don't talk to women and Jews don't talk to Samaritans. And so I might smile <laughs> and then turn away. Would you have spoken with her? Let me ask you this because here's what will answer the question for you. Do you speak to people like her now? Because the, the Samaritan woman is all over. There are people in the gaps all over. You pass them all the time. Do you speak to them now? Do you acknowledge their humanity? I'm not asking if you agree with them. I'm not asking if you, if you endorse whatever decisions they've made that, that maybe has put them in the gap. I'm not asking that. I'm just saying, do you acknowledge that they're people created in the image of God? Are you willing to step into the gap for the people that God may bring across your path? What does this mean? Well, this probably means for you a difficult conversation. There are gaps that you have in your relationships. A different conversation with a spouse, with a child, with a coworker, with a friend, with a neighbor. Something's funky going on there. I don't know what that is, but there's rightness and there's this reality. And, and we're not at the right side. We're at the real side. Are you willing to enter into the gap? And have a conversation with somebody that maybe isn't going to take it well, isn't going to be... What do you do? Are you willing to enter into the gaps? What about the way you drive home? Do you avoid looking at things on your drive across the city? Because that's a gap, isn't it? We don't like to look at the gaps. I don't want to see the gaps. I don't want to see the people sleeping under the overpasses. So it's easier for me when I get to a stoplight to turn the other way. And I'm not suggesting that you roll down your window and give people money because I'm not saying they'll use it for the right things. But I'm saying, do you recognize the gap or do you turn your head away? Because Jesus never did. He pressed into the gaps. And if you want satisfaction for your soul, Jesus himself said, my soul is satisfied when I do the will of the one who sent me. And the will of the one who sent me is to bring heaven to earth for his will to be done here. The people who hunger for change. Here's what I've noticed. And I've been, I've been doing this a long time, work with a lot of people. And I just, informal survey in my head and my heart as I thought back through it over these last few weeks getting ready for this message. The people who hunger for change, who are not satisfied with the status quo, are often the most satisfied people in their relationship with Christ. The people that I know who, who, who lose sleep over the gaps of our society are completely satisfied in Christ because they've joined him in doing the will of the Father. Are you willing to enter into the gaps? There's one other gap, and we're not going to spend long on it, but the gap between being comfortable and being conformed. This is a gap in you and in me. Because the reason I don't enter into the gaps is because I really, really, really value my comfort. And gaps are uncomfortable places. But I am never conformed to the image of Jesus on my couch. I'm never conformed to the image of Jesus on my vacation. 
I'm never conformed to the image of Jesus when my kids are doing the right thing and the bank account is good and my, my relationships are good. I am conformed to Jesus when I am willing to enter into the difficult things of life. That's when, that's when I'm being conformed. So there's a gap between my comfort and my willingness to be conformed to the image of Christ. And I've got to ask myself this question. Am I willing to step into the gap between being comfortable and being conformed? So here's my question for you on Memorial Day. I, I, I'm just thinking about, man, this is a holiday weekend, come to church. And I, 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 the last thing you're thinking about is being conformed to the image of Jesus and gaps in our society. I mean, we're just ready to get out, go to the beach, do whatever we got to do. I get that. I know that. But, but please, if there is something inside of your soul that hungers for something more, if there's something inside of you that says, I don't know why I'm not satisfied in my relationship with God, would you look at what, where Jesus found the nourishment for his soul, where his hunger was satisfied? It was in doing the will of God, stepping into the gaps. Are you hungry for righteousness. Let's pray. Father, I think about the words of Jesus, blessed are those who hunger for righteousness, for they will be filled. And Lord, I, I recognize in my own life and in, in the lives of, of others that many times when we're hungry, we eat. When we're thirsty, we drink. And never give never give thought to the fact that there may be something on a deeper level that you're drawing, a satisfaction that you can give us that goes beyond a temporary fix. Lord, Lord, today I pray that as we look at this example of Jesus, that we would recognize that he's offering us a satisfaction for the soul that so far goes beyond anything that gives us temporary comfort or pleasure. Lord, help us to be a church who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, who looks at the gap between heaven and earth and says, we will stand in the gap. Help us to be people who enter the gaps in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our city, in the world. Help us to enter the gaps. And Lord, it'll be uncomfortable. It may be painful. It will be challenging. But Father, if we truly want satisfaction for our soul, help us to see where it comes from. Give us the faith and the courage to follow you obediently into the gaps of life this week. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.